Would you open God's precious holy word to Luke 20? And we'll be in verses 9 through 18 today. And we're going to look at a parable that has seven parts, or at least as I'm going to present it. Christ's authority has just been questioned by the religious leadership of the Jews in Luke 20 verses 1 through 8. We saw that last time. Christ had cast out the money changers. He was teaching people the true scripture, ignoring the traditions of men. Their question to him was, by what authority do you do these things? Now, that's kind of funny. It reminds me of a, an Andy Griffith show one time. Barney Fife had just been dressed down by somebody. I mean, they chewed him out. And he takes a little step forward and he said, if you've got something to say, just say it. Christ had raised the dead, stopped a storm, healed the sick, cast out demons, had gripped the people with his teaching, and a pitiful question, by what authority do you do these things? Now in this parable, Christ will address the hypocrisy of Israel's leadership. But it's not just those who are standing around him giving him the problem at that point in time. Christ takes a swipe at the sweep of Israel's history here with this parable. And we're going to see all of that, God willing, as we make our way through this passage and then reflect on what it means to us as individuals, as a church, as a church specific, a local body, as the church in general, universal today. So let's look at it. Then he began to speak this parable to the people. A certain man planted a vineyard and rented it to farmers, went abroad for a long time. And in the season that... Uh, Word it comes from Karas. It, uh, it's a word that means at the appropriate time, kakaro, verse 10. At the appropriate time, he sent the farmers a slave so that they would give to him from the fruit of the vineyard. They were tenant farmers. He owned the land, so they'd had an agreement. They had the freedom and the privilege to, working, to work the land. They just had to give him a portion of what was worked. And they agreed on it. Something they agreed on. When the time came, then at the appropriate time, he sent the farmers a slave. So they'd give him the fruit of the vineyard. But the farmers sent him away empty-handed having beaten him. So this was illegal and it was criminal. He proceeded to send another slave 
But having beaten and dishonored him, they sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third. Then also having traumatized him, they cast him out. Then the master of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son, the beloved. Perhaps they will respect him. Now, having seen him, call your attention. I have it underlined and bold, but it's the word up there is the very first word in the Greek text, edontes. It means they knew who he was, edontes. They recognized, they comprehended, they knew who this was. They saw him coming, they knew who he was. His identity was not unknown to them. He could prove who he was, but they already knew. The farmers began reasoning among themselves. We get our word dialogue from that Greek word. They dialogued. They entered into a dialogue. So this was a conspiracy. This wasn't just a thing. They recognized him coming. They knew he was. The proof was there. But they entered into a conspiracy. Saying this, the heir, let us kill him so that the inheritance might become ours. Now this is probably what was happening in the minds of these tenant farmers. Seeing the sun coming... They thought they could outdo the sun. Because if, if nothing happened and, the, and, it, and it appeared that the owner of the vineyard was dead or whatever, if there was no official transaction for three years, those who were working the land, according to Talmudic law among the Jews, those who were working the land after those three years would own the land. So you see, they say, if we get rid of him, the inheritance might become ours. We just get the land. So these guys are evil. They're criminal. There's no good in them. They have dark hearts. And having cast him forth outside the vineyard, they killed him, murdered him. What will the master of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these farmers and will give the vineyard to somebody else, to others. Take note here. Having heard it, okay, so the, the parable is over. Deeper teaching now occurs from Christ to those who are immediately around him, especially the religious leaders. So it says here, having heard it, akousantes, very verse Greek word, akousantes, that means they comprehend, they understood that, hey, they say, we get it. We know what you're saying. You're saying that you're the son and God the father has sent you and we're rejecting you and you're going to take the religion 
of God and give it to somebody else. We know what you're saying. Having heard it, comprehended and understood it, then they said, may it never be. But having looked at them, he said, then what is this that has been written? So he quotes the 118th, 118th Psalm. The stone which those building rejected. This has become the head of the corner. This was a, a, a Hallel Psalm. It, it, was a, it was a Psalm about Messiah, a prophecy that the very cornerstone on which everything would be built, nothing, you couldn't erect the building without the cornerstone in the way they built the things then. Those building the building rejected the cornerstone. This stone has become the corner. And so Christ teaches them and says, everyone falling on that stone will be broken. But on whomever it might fall, it will grind him into powder. So keeping this passage in mind, let's look at what I consider the seven parts of this parable. Number one, there's the vineyard. Now the vineyard was a place for service. As a matter of fact, Matthew, who gives us a little more extensive account of this parable, said that the owner of the vineyard had placed a hedge around it so that it would be separated and not easily accessed by those who weren't supposed to be there. Had put a wine press there so that there could even be an additional blessing and built a tower so that those who occupied the vineyard, the tenant farmers, could watch for danger. According to Matthew, so if you put those two together, you'll see they had everything they needed. The, 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 the owner was very gracious, so this vineyard was a place for service. It was a secure place. It was a place for fruitfulness. It was expected that whoever farmed the vineyard would produce fruit because the piece of property carefully selected and thus separated for this purpose would naturally produce fruit if it was worked properly. And it was a place for honoring the owner. The tenant farmers did not own the vineyard. But it was their responsibility to honor the owner by giving him a portion of what would come out of the vineyard. That's the first part. Okay, second part of the parable would be the owner. Very gracious. He didn't have to separate a place for somebody to work and and for somebody to have the opportunity to produce and take care of themselves. He didn't have to, but he did. They didn't have to purchase the property. All they had to do was work it, and they entered into an agreement, and both parties agreed, this is fair, this is good, we will give you this portion. We will be fruitful, and this is what you will get. So 
Very gracious was the owner of the vineyard. He determined from within himself to provide a place that could produce fruit. Where in the production of that fruit, the owner would be glorified. Second thing about the owner was he's very patient. They beat up the first guy, the first slave. He had every legal right to bring the authorities upon these tenant farmers. The parable that Jesus teaches illustrates a situation that was very common in the day of Christ. Quite a few Jews who did not live in or around Jerusalem owned property. They were wealthy and they allowed their property be, to be tended to by others. So the authorities would have been familiar with what the responsibilities were on both sides. In this case, the owner was very patient. After they beat up the first slave that he had sent so that he might receive what was his, he sent him a second one. He didn't bring the authorities down. He didn't bring judgment on them. He sent a second slave. They beat him up. He sent a third and they traumatized him. Another, another of the gospel accounts said they killed him. That's pretty traumatic, isn't it? But in his patience, he said, well, I'll send my son. They'll respect my son. They saw him coming. They recognized him. They conspired against him and against his father. They would not give up their place, even to the son of the owner. They were wicked and they were evil. Not even the son of the owner, not even any claim the owner had was something they were going to listen to. They were filled with arrogance and pride and hypocrisy. So in their dialogue with each other, in their conspiracy, having recognized the son because his credentials were impeccable, they killed him. Somehow in their twisted reasoning, believing they could maintain their place of authority, even to the point of claiming ownership of that vineyard. Then there's the third part, the tenants. They had responsibilities. There was no misunderstanding what the contract was. The owner, according to both Matthew and Luke, the owner had given them a prime piece of property to work. He provided for their security, gave them everything they needed. All they had to do was just work the vineyard. It would produce fruit. The harder they worked, the more it produced, the more they would get and the more glory the owner would get. They had, under, they had, they had responsibilities 
and they understood what the work was and they understood their responsibilities. Simply this, with very little effort, but with effort, the vineyard would be fruitful. The owner, having arranged for all of this, would receive glory from it. And they had a season of opportunity to produce the fruit and to do the right thing. In the appropriate season, if the tenants had failed in their part, then the owner would send a slave, a servant. Now, the servant sent forth by the owner would carry word from the owner to the tenants, the occupants, who had the privilege of working the owner's land that it was time for fruit to be seen and for the owner to receive his glory. They refused and they cruelly mistreated the slave sent forth from the owner. The owner just didn't keep sending these slaves. They were sent at an appropriate time, a crucial time, an epoch, a time when they needed to give an account. And if something was wrong, they would need to confess and repent and get back on track. One slave then another slave, then another slave, until finally, last of all, the owner sent his son. Remember, we're taught in the scriptures that Christ knew their hearts. He's God, the son. He knew their hearts. He knew, according to the language of Luke, they saw and recognized, they comprehended, they understood, this guy is the Messiah. He has every reason to claim, son of David, miracle worker, powerful, does things that are supernatural, and if they would loosen themselves from their biases, they would see that he was fulfilling every whit of the prophecies concerning the first coming of the Messiah, which had to do with a suffering servant who would die. But they rejected that. They refused that. Having seen him, recognized him, understood who he is, knowing that he had the credentials 
This is the heir. He's the son of God. He is the son of the owner. He has every right to do whatever he does. But they rejected him and murdered him. They killed him. Christ is perhaps at this point in time, two days from the cross, when he teaches this parable. He had already told several times his disciples that he would be killed, crucified, even told how he would be, the conspiracy and how it would work out. But then on the third day, he would rise again. Christ knows he's headed for the cross. And he knows the hearts of these religious leaders. I'm thinking that he looks at them as he gives this parable, looks at them right in the eye and says, when he sends the son, they will kill him. Kill the son. The sixth part of this parable is the punishment that is placed upon the tenant farmers. The punishment was this. I'm going to take this vineyard away from you. I'm going to destroy you. And I'm going to put someone else here who will be fruitful. Now remember what they said? They were, having heard this, they, they said, oh, no, 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 no. Now you think about this. They knew what Jesus was talking about. These, these Galileans that were following Jesus, they were looked down upon by the Sadducees and the Herodians and the scribes and the Pharisees. They looked down on the followers of Jesus. They were the deplorables of his day. Did I say that? It's a word. But the elitists scoffed, filled with disdain and reproach, saw that Jesus was being magnetically followed by these people that according to the previous passage we've studied, hung on to every word that Jesus taught. And when Jesus said, the current tenant farmers, the current occupants of the vineyard who are going to kill the son will be displaced and replaced. Oh no. And they looked around at the ones following Jesus. Oh no, may this never be. No, 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 no. What Jesus said. They will be destroyed. The owner, the master of the vineyard said, they'll be destroyed and displaced and replaced. Someone else will be brought in to do what they have failed to do. Fast forward just 
three decades or so from the time Jesus teaches this parable, Christ had already said not one stone will be left on another when he spoke of the temple, the great stones of the temple, some of them nearly as big as the inside of the sanctuary. Not one stone left on another. In come the Romans. They killed Christ. They murdered him. Daniel said they would. Daniel 7. And all kinds of misplaced religious zeal comes into the hearts of the Jewish people there while the church begins to grow tremendously. So Judaism outright rejects the church and those in the church leading up to the time when General Titus would come in with his legions of Romans, utterly destroy the place and the culture and the temple of the Jews. It was so destroyed that the family records of which the Jews had been so proud, the records of the priests of which the priesthood had been so proud, all of those records were utterly pulverized and destroyed. When the Roman general was through, no Jew could ever again find his ancestry. No one could ever know what tribe they were from until God, outside of the tribe of Judah, the Jews, until the time that God would come and reveal it to them at the close of the age. No one could claim priesthood just a few years after that because when that generation of priests had died and, and the temple was gone and there was no service for the priesthood and they had been dispersed and sent out from that area, the, their identity as priests just totally lost. Everything was gone so that nobody today really can claim anything like what they had in this day. Totally moved out of the way. And then what happens? Those, those old nasty Galileans and all of those others on the day of Pentecost were immersed in the Holy Spirit of God. The church was born and the church had simple marching orders. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the rest of the world. Teach them whatever I've taught you. Make disciples of them. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And it happened. And it was unstoppable. And there was fruitfulness. And this vineyard now was no longer just confined to a specific place and a specific race. 
But it exploded outward all over the world so that when we get to the revelation and the time of the end has come and the saints of God stand before our Christ and Savior, we hear these words. They came from every tribe and tongue and kindred and nation. Couldn't say that in the times of these scribes and elders and Pharisees. The church, the vineyard, has gone everywhere. And God has been glorified. So the punishment upon the tenant farmers was they would lose everything they had and they'd be destroyed. The meaning of their genealogy, family history, priesthood, everything lost. Lost. Now think about this. In the Bible, the last of the sons of David to be identified was Jesus. Now there may have been some since then that claimed otherwise, I don't know. But the record is... There was no need for any other record. Caesar Augustus issued the decree. The world was to be taxed. Everybody had to go to the place of his father's house. And so that meant that Joseph and Mary had to go to Bethlehem, thus fulfilling the scriptures. Everything about it. Son of David. Son of God. The only record we need now is the fact that Christ is the son of David. Don't need all that other stuff. Christ, the son of David, the son of God. They lost everything. They were destroyed. All of that pride and hypocrisy were crushed and gone because they fell against the cornerstone. Seventh and last thing, prophecy and judgment. The profound tragedy of rejecting Christ. Christ essentially said, What, what falls against the cornerstone will be broken. And everything that's left in rejection of Christ will be crushed by same said cornerstone. Broken, crushed, judged because Christ was rejected. So today, the gospel is preached around the world by the grace of God and the work of His Holy Spirit. By the power of the gospel, by the will of God, people are coming to Christ all over the world. Day and night, north and south, east and west, all over the world. I heard an interesting thing on a news report the other day. Fastest growing 
I don't like the term, but fastest growing religion in the world is Christianity. Exploding in growth, especially in Africa and in the Middle East. Think about that. The power of the Christ, the power of the gospel, the loss of the religious leadership. Jesus said that the owner sent slave after slave. The Father in heaven sent prophet after prophet. They killed him, mistreated him. Isaiah apparently was sawn in half. We went through Jeremiah. We saw what happened to Jeremiah more than once, how he was so mistreated. Others as well. There's a summary of it in Hebrews 11. What the very people who should have accepted those servants and the word from the owner of the vineyard, those who had rejected it and mistreated the messengers, for 2,000 years from Moses to John the Baptist. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. And he cried out in his weeping and grief. You've killed the prophets. Mistreated those who have been sent to you. If only you had known. This the time of your visitation. And the one who visits you. But their loss has become our gain. To paraphrase what Paul says in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And we have this privilege that they had. And we have to be careful. God has given us a vineyard that reaches around the world. He has given to us security. He's hedged us about, built a tower for us, and even put a wine press there. We just have faith in Christ, and Christ works through us in a way that we don't even realize if we totally submit ourselves to Him. But we must beware. If and when the time comes... And the owner of the vineyard thinks that the tenant of the vineyard has failed him and will not listen to his word. He removes them. Displaces them. We have a great responsibility as a local body of Christ. We have a great responsibility as Christians personally. We have a privilege we have opportunity after opportunity just like the leaders of Israel did. The kings and the, the priesthood especially. And the Father is to be glorified through the Son. Our job description is quite simple. And the resources upon which we draw very powerful. So what is our story when we think of ourselves in light of this parable? Let's pray together. Father God in heaven, Lord, oh God, may we be found faithful and true.
to the gospel, to your word, to the beloved who is your son. We know him, we recognize him, but in a way that is different from the way they recognized him. So Lord, help us and bless us in these last days that we might, in the power of Christ and his Holy Spirit, reach out into the world. That we might have the privilege of seeing the fruitfulness those whom you would draw to yourself by your power. And now, Lord, bless this invitation. Father, I pray if someone is here without Christ, that you would save them today. Whatever else, Lord, that you would require Oh, God, may it be done. In Christ's name. Amen. Maybe you're here without Christ. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing a song of invitation. If the Holy Spirit pleads with you, I certainly plead with you to come to Christ today. That's the power of God. It's not the power that I have or anybody else. Only by the power of God can you come to Christ. I'm praying this is a day for you. If you're here, you're already a Christian and God is leading you to come and be a part of our congregation. We'll take care of all the details of membership if that's what God wants in your life. You come today. Let's stand together and sing. Would you come?